scratching off the company pin Cause you know where that'll get you to I don't go fishing off the company pin There's nothing but heartbreak where the ball's from hell Nothing but heartbreak where the ball's from hell Welcome so to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siegel. Our theme song this season is Don't Go Fishing by the Snarlin' Yarns, a Utah-based quintet of poet laureates, attorneys, and writing professors. Their debut album, Break Your Heart, is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or through their website, thesnarlinyarns.com. Check it out. One of the few through lines of Twain's dynamic literary career is his participation in newspaper hoaxes, which began when he was an anonymous Wildcat editor and continued, as Barbara Schmidt has shown, until a few months before his death. I think Twain was attracted to the newspaper hoax by the elegance of its futility. The oft overstated mission of the genre was to expose the flimsiness of truth claims made by mass market publications but the genre was also disseminated through those mass market publications, and when successful, hoaxes increased their circulation and the public appetite for newspapers. The hoax marshaled brands like the New York Sun and Harper's Weekly to the service of a serial fiction which became interwoven and indistinguishable from the reception of a gullible public, supplemented by letters to the editor, excerpts from other uninitiated periodicals, and man-on-the-street reporting. But the huckster's creative labor was also simultaneously being marshaled in service of those media brands. The circulation of misinformation for the purpose of satire proved an ineffectual safeguard against the circulation of misinformation for the purpose of propaganda and profit. I fear something of the same dynamic presides over satires of reality television. From Lisa Kudrow's influential HBO 2005 mockumentary, The Comeback, to the rehearsal, Nathan Fielder's six-episode nesting doll of cinema verite perversions, which debuted on HBO this summer. I have a show that requires a specific type of performance. Almost immediately, I felt a rush of excitement come over me when I remembered there were cameras filming me. HBO cameras. There is something about the way that Fielder says HBO cameras that reminds me of Twain's tone when discussing established publishers of his work, from the New York Tribune to Harper's Brothers books. It's disdain mixed with awe, the resignation of incorrigible pranksters practicing their art within and against institutions who they know can appropriate, neutralize, and commoditize it at a whim. In this episode, the second in our series on HBO, From Pulp to Prestige, I'm talking with two TV studies scholars about the rehearsal, as well as the genre and commercial forces of the streaming wars, with particular attention to how those forces are impacting HBO programming following the Warner Brothers Discovery merger of 2021. J.D. Connor is Associate Professor of Cinematic Arts at University of Southern California, and the author of two books, Hollywood Math and the Aftermath, and The Studios After the Studios. Olivia Stoll is a graduate student in communications and media at University of Michigan, working on a dissertation about, among other things, reality TV. Her work has recently appeared in ASAP, Post 45, The New Review of Film and Television, and Television and New Media. 
for more about our guests, as well as a bibliography of works alluded to in this episode, please visit MarkTwainStudies.com backslash the rehearsal. I'm going to start with a, a kind of hypothesis. I, I, I'm going to even go so far to call it a vulgar hypothesis. Drawing upon how I understand Michael Zelay's arguments about HBO and brand equity that are vicariously then also drawing on people like Deborah Jarmio and Jerry Christensen, essentially HBO is doing corporate politics with its programming, that it is trying to establish its identity, uh, retain that equity within the brand, both against competitors from the outside, but also within the complex structures that it has found itself continuously since the early 1970s when it was bought by Time Life. My vulgar hypothesis is that the re rehearsal is HBO's first foray. It's kind of shot across the bow of Warner Brothers Discovery. This show was essentially greenlit the same month that the Warner Brothers Discovery merger was announced. Nathan Fielder was probably already working on it and had signed his contract with HBO before that. In many ways, it feels like this is an attack on reality television and that the Discovery brand is closely associated with reality television. And so my vulgar hypothesis to get us started is that this is HBO starting to look to its parent company with not just angst about reorganization that it always has, but also with a little bit of antagonism, recognizing that its brand is maybe the most valuable thing within this new company. I think that as vulgar as you imply that hypothesis is it's not wrong. The obviousness with which this particular series talks about its own production, its own green light, its own monetary struggles, the ludicrousness of the production design, which is clearly where huge amounts of money are being spent, while at the same time, like joking that extras can't be paid uh, and that that saves them $15,000, lets us know that this is operating on at least several other different levels. But I think there's a very specific way in which it's not the vulgar hypothesis you imply. And that is that Nathan's got two TV series under development at roughly the same time, this and The Curse. And The Curse hasn't come out yet, but it's over at Showtime and it's being done with Benny Safdie. And the curse that is operating in that show is cursing our central couple's reality TV series that is literally on HGTV called Philanthropy. It's a house flipping charity show. So the rehearsal is that, but disguised enough that it can also be the HBO product. And that strikes me as one of the things that's consistent with HBO's programming across now almost half a century, that it can be legibly about its company, but also very frequently just takes half a step back so that it can be deniably about that company. Uh, in that sense, it would be different from, say, the most recent Matrix movie, which was literally about Warners, or different from the most recent Space Jam movie, which was 
ludicrously about Warner's. So it'll be about it, but it'll also be slightly not about it. And we can sort of use these two series as a kind of controlled experiment to see what at least the people greenlighting and making these shows think they can get away with in the midst of the new Warner Brothers Discovery Zazaverse. <laughs> so there's a kind of plausible deniability embedded in the complexity of HBO's storytelling, right? I think that's right. I also think that's definitely the case. And I think that if we're looking at the kind of general landscape of HBO's relationship to reality programming, unscripted programming, all of these other categories, there's also sort of the recent wrinkle of the unscripted reality series that live in HBO Max rather than HBO proper. And I think there's sort of a commonality across a lot of these reality series where there is layer upon layer of reality in scare quotes. The scholar Jerome Bourdon calls this reality television's Baroque aesthetics, where there's always another curtain that hides another curtain that hides another curtain that can always be unveiled in varying ways. And when you look at something like the rehearsal, obviously that's the case, right? We're always going deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole, but that's also the case on a lot of the weird, more off kilter HBO unscripted series. I'm thinking about something like F-Boy Island that is constantly calling attention to its own production in very different ways than the rehearsal does, but with like a similar sort of underlying impulse to my mind, at least, in terms of the way that reality itself is kind of being troubled in the context of these programs. That's right. Just to follow up on that, if we think that what we're actually watching here is a twofold experiment, one, which is what is HBO's relationship to being a mass streaming platform with HBO Max? And two, what's its relationship to its new owners? And we've been talking about its new owners. But that move to HBO Max, it was pretty clear that for Casey Bloy's who I think is just a brilliant TV executive, that all of the failings of HBO, all of the limits of HBO, all of the things that seem to be necessary to guarantee its prestige now needed to be tweaked and torqued and reopened. So the question of down market things like reality TV needed to be brought back in, but given an HBO twist. The question of the true crime series needed to be brought back in, but given an HBO twist, and we get the flight attendant, which is just a tremendously successful attempt to brand HBO Max as HBO, but not HBO with like depressed anti-hero guys at the center of it. And I think that they were making tremendous progress on the programming side in trying to do that right up until this most recent earnings call. And not that like these grand cultural shifts and switches are dependent on individual earnings calls. But at that one, there was uh, J.B. Perrett, who was the head of global streaming, was presenting what he regarded as the kind of complementarity of HBO and Discovery. And there was a slide that then became fairly notorious. And on the left side, for those of us who are listening, it said HBO Max. And on the right side, it said Discovery Plus. And on the HBO Max side, it said Male Skew. And on Discovery Plus, it said Female Skew. And that had to sort of send shivers through the programmers at HBO Max who knew that HBO had a Male Skew and had spent a year, two years, three years before launch trying to correct that or balance it out and so on. But also immediately below that, HBO Max was scripted, Discovery Plus was unscripted. HBO Max was lean in, Discovery Plus was lean back. And 
all of those things were things that the folks at HBO Max were deeply aware of and trying to work on. And here it had just been reduced, boiled down to a very generic, very misogynist split rather than a marketing challenge uh, that they were facing. And since then, of course, lots of series have been disappeared or have been, you know, ungreenlit or whatever. But in the midst of all of that, Nathan's work seems male, scripted, unscripted, but about that problem certainly is lean in television. And that, like, if you're not paying attention, you don't get a lot of the jokes and you don't get the switches and meta levels and so on. Where something like F Boy Island is supposed to be lean back. But then, of course, because as Olivia was saying, it's always revealing another layer, it ends up being lean in female skewing, unscripted television. So anyway, these are the two real tacks that HBO, HBO Max has been trying to grapple with. And after that earnings call, it's pretty clear that the attempt to turn HBO Max into a complementing way to rescue the HBO brand for all the problems that it might have had, that that's been abandoned and that Discovery Plus is going to carry that largely, and that the flight attendant, mayor of Easttown, F-Boy Island approach is going to take a back burner, at least for a while. I'm really interested in a lot of things that you brought up, especially since, you know, and maybe this is me falling into my demographic, I have not seen F-Boy Island, right? And so some of the forays into HBO brand reality television on HBO Max, I have not actually consumed. But I wanted to ask both of you that poorly conceived graphic from the earnings call had a kind of virality. And listeners will be able to see what we're talking about if they go to marktwainstudies.com backslash the rehearsal. Is this really a problem for HBO? Now, there's a long legacy of HBO having kind of gender issues and also trying to solve those issues in very evident ways through things like Sex in the City and Girls and so on and so forth. But right? it seems like almost every decade, HBO tries to create television for a mixed audience and succeeds to some extent, but it doesn't prevent it from having to do the same thing over and over again. And so that graphic seemed to be based upon stereotypes more than it was upon data. And so my question is sort of like, is this a real problem for HBO and HBO Max? Or is this a kind of archetypal problem of prestige TV that goes back decades, which Discovery is then using that archetype to justify its programming decisions? Yeah, I mean, I think if part of the question undergirding there is the way that the content associated with the brand HBO is addressed or not towards gender, I think then it's more of an illusory problem or a manufactured problem than it actually seems, right? Because if we look back at like the programming of HBO proper, there's tons of stuff that fits more or less comfortably all along with that idea of the male anti-hero epitomizing American decline in some way of something like The Sopranos or, you know, Deadwood or whatever else. Because uh, right alongside those shows or slightly afterwards, you have things like Big Love and True Blood that skew less obviously into that mode. And so I think if we look at it purely from a standpoint of like what kind of programming is being created and within those programs, how is 
gender at work, either as a milieu or as a kind of demographic breakdown. It seems to be, to me at least, to my mind, more of a manufactured idea about what the brand is than an actuality. But at the same time, as JD was pointing to earlier, the prevalence of female-led shows in HBO Max over the past couple of years with like The Flight Attendant, Hacks, Mayor of Easttown, Julia, Minx, suggests that there was kind of a sense that there was something that needed to be recalibrated, at least on the end of their programming, which maybe makes it seem slightly less illusory. That's kind of a have it both ways answer. I'll follow up and say that it's an illusion with an audience. And the audience here is the investor class, right. the investor class who doesn't have a good sense of what HBO's programming legacy is, but does know that it had The Sopranos and does perhaps have a mistaken idea about how male skewing HBO is. So to go out and say that HBO is male skewing helps to feed that idea. But really that slide, to the extent that it had a force for the investor class, was to say that there is a very particular thing you want out of a streamer going forward. And what you want are hits that are global. Game of Thrones was never regarded as male skewing or female skewing. It was just an enormous blockbuster. And the people sign up for hits, but they stay there for series. Grind it out, reality series. These are the things that keep you from churning away. The lean back stuff. Yeah, that's right. And so the idea here was, we know that HBO is a place of what it called in the slide fandoms. It's a place where you can get people to sign up to make sure that they're watching whatever this next truly global hit is going to be. But to keep them around month after month after month, it's very hard to produce 12 appointment television landmark series in a year. That's what your Discovery Plus is there for. The comfort viewing, as they call it, the genre viewing, as they call it in the slide. And that sense that we can do both of those things, even if one's going to be called HBO Max and one's going to be just called Discovery Plus, is really just an account of pulse and retention. Maybe nobody signs up for the HBO Max Discovery Bundle because it's got the fifth season of House Hunters International on it. But maybe somebody doesn't cancel because it's got that. And when they've run through Game of Thrones, they switch over and watch a few episodes. And I think that that's really where this illusion takes root. Even if it's not quite true, it's a claim that's getting made by HBO against, say, Netflix, which is a place that has not been able to manufacture sort of sign-up hits with the exception of a few things like Stranger Things, and where the worry on Wall Street was that in order to keep generating huge event television series or movies, you would be cannibalizing the rest of your slate or the theatrical, or it would be prohibitively expensive. And now they could say, we've got expensive, we got cheap, and that keeps everybody around. To go back to the rehearsal, but also consider it as part of this landscape of Max originals that are in some ways competing with HBO originals. To what extent the rehearsal is trying to demarcate what is perceived to be a sort of major disruption to televisual culture, right? The so-called streaming wars. And it does seem as though one of the things that Fielder wants to draw our attention to is the, the insiderness, the industry, the ways in which uh, you know actors are treated, right? That we are in 
a content economy that has maybe a level of demand that is certainly greater than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but may not be at a permanently high plateau, right? I think pre presumption is that this is going to play out in a way where content will not always be king. And so I was wondering how you saw the show through this lens that I presume Fielder at least is self-conscious of, and I would presume HBO is as well, that this is a reflection in some ways upon the labor landscape of the streaming wars. Yeah, I mean, that's what the Fielder method in episode four really does for us. It puts 25 actors that we maybe even kind of recognize a little bit, you know, from commercials and other things in a room and then puts a substitutably similar group of 25 actors in that same room with now him in costume right after it. And that version is the Hollywood aspirational day job barista kind of old school, maybe we could make it kind of rally story. And then the kids who are on a clock and who are getting substituted is just horrific from the very first moment. And I had friends who thought that it was very, very funny that they were substituting kids. And I said, this is going to be awful. And that was before we got to the true horror of, you know, episodes five and six, when that pays off in exactly the opposite way. So I think you're totally right that it's about labor, but it's also about very different versions of acting labor. The thing that we don't have here that is happening in other HBO series is writer's room Mm -hmm. We don't see him and his collaborators writing. We don't know what writing looks like for them. One of my favorite podcasts uh, is Good One, the Jesse David Fox Vulture podcast, not to cross advertise. But uh, no, no, I know Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that he regularly asks his stand-up comic guests is, what does writing look like for you? Because some people write on stage and some people write by listening back and some people go get a notebook and go to the library. And there's no idea what writing really looks like here. So there's other labor that's sort of left to the side uh, in order to concentrate on acting. Absolutely. And I think that part of what is also indexed by the Fielder Method episode specifically, but also the other episodes of the series, is a sense of like labor in a gig economy, right? Where all of them are replaceable by almost identical versions of themselves who can be slotted in to recreate a scenario with more or less the same effect. And I think that we can see that obviously with the way that the class of students is just turned over as JD just described. But we also see that like with the children, right? That this idea that any of these child actors can more or less be essentially the same person in the same way and it works just as well. And we get around all these child labor laws and it all counts the same. And I think that that sense that this acting as a gig in which you are readily and easily replaceable by another version of someone who is more or less exactly the same type as you is also something that the show is interested in and even kind of does that with Nathan himself, right? When we have someone else to play Nathan in the context of the show. But I think there's something there that points to the writer or at least showrunner like labor there in that we don't see fake Nathan rehearse doing the show, the rehearsal. We just see fake Nathan playing the teacher of the acting class. And so there's something there, I think, about the absence of the other kinds of labor that Nathan Fielder, the person, rather than Nathan Fielder, the character did, that gets registered in those scenes as well. That's right. And I think that that gets to the real deep underlying sentimentality of the show. 
what we're really investigating are the complications of sentiment. And so there's a very brief scene right before the staged birthday party where various adults are driving up in their compact SUVs and the PA says, Adam is the birthday boy. This is your child, he's Adam's friend. And this is Adam's birthday gift. And there's, you know, five or six cars there and five or six kids and five or six presents. So that gig economy model is reduced to just this microtransaction. Everybody's ready to go. And it's a birthday. It's a child. It's a parent. It's all of the things about which one could feel sentimental. And in fact, we are feeling sentimental about it in those last two episodes. And that's where our attention lies, not in creative excellence or in, you know, what was it like when... Nathan made demands of the production design team, which clearly is functioning at the highest possible level in this. You know, we don't get to that. We get to this other side. I, I did feel as though the absence of the writer's room, the ambiguity about whether this is unscripted or scripted, I felt like that was all very purposeful. I watched three episodes of this with my students during the first week of class, and one of the things that we came away with was a kind of collective critique of reality TV that is the rehearsal was a vehicle for. And I, I asked them on the final day of that week, right, will this make you more uncomfortable watching the reality television products that you love you know things like 90 day fiance and the bachelor and survivor and below deck and so on and so forth what you now recognize very easily recognize in the rehearsal as a great deal of ambiguity between what is being performed and what is spontaneous between who is being exploited the ambiguity about who is being exploited is that going to change the way that you consume reality television and there was a lot of nodding about that and I do wonder will this show have impact upon how reality television is produced both within the Warner Brothers Discovery ecosystem where it is obviously a major revenue generator and then maybe beyond could could some of these sort of labor gig work problems be addressed more directly because Fielder has sort of brought them to the screen. I am a little bit cynical about this and I'm going to say I don't think so. <laughs> and I think part of the reason why is that not just in the rehearsal and not just in HBO, HBO Max reality on scripted programming, but across the board, something that I'm currently studying in my work is the increasing visibility of production techniques and production workers in reality television more generally. And I mean, I watch an embarrassing amount of reality television across a variety of genres. And something that I have noticed over the past roughly, you know, three to five years is you see more and more shots where camera people are visible. You see more and more shots where a producer will come interrupt a scene to check in with someone on something like The Bachelor, you know, or to pull someone off to the side and reveal some piece of information. You see more and more obvious editing techniques and styles where the editing becomes increasingly stylized. It calls more attention to itself. So all of these elements of increasingly visible production, I think are there to address and neutralize that feeling. Because I think when you watch sort of the heyday of 2000s reality television, something like Jersey Shore, 
part of the main pleasure of it is people behaving ludicrously, breaking social norms, and also the sense of like judging them because you feel better than them, but you can also enjoy what's happening. But eventually that sort of semiotic code gets exhausted over time. It becomes predictable. It becomes slightly played out. And so there has to be a new way that the form can continue to address the audience in a way that placates and reassures the audience as being superior to or above what's occurring on the screen. And I think that the way that that is currently manifesting is to assure the viewer by pulling back one of those curtains and showing like, hey, we're in on it too. We know you know that that clip is edited. We know you know there are camera people in the room. Showing those things so that the viewer can then be like, I'm in on it and not feel implicated as such or not feel the kind of critical distance that a more traditional Brechtian move might theoretically create. I think that's exactly right, that it's not about a Brechtian kind of disillusionment at all. John Caldwell calls this the Z-axis of television, that moment when it necessarily becomes reflexive. The question is less, will this undo the damage, the cultural damage that we might imagine reality TV does if we imagine that, or will it be as it usually is enfolded in a hunt for prestige in a different market segment, which is clearly what's going on. Nathan himself may believe that what he's doing is, you know, existing at the place where he can morally justify the overarching project in order to concentrate on the moral quandaries that he wants to. But really, it's just as dependent on all of those same techniques, all that same gig work, all that same stuff. And knowing that doesn't make him a monster. <laughs> Maybe what he does to the kids makes him a monster, but it certainly makes him part of that same like moment when it jumps up a degree. I think I could even step back and I think Olivia was headed this way and say that I think this is where reality TV is now, not just because of its own internal exhaustion and the kind of move to the Baroque that art movements go through, but because of where neoliberalism is. You know, one of the foundational arguments about reality TV is Laurie Lett's argument that it's about creating an audience that can moralize with or against the people that it watches, whether that's true of Judge Judy and it's true of the com competition shows and it's true of the romance shows. And that neoliberal subject clearly is under enormous new pressures, not just since 2008, but with this show and some of the others around it, clearly with the return of enormous government maintenance of the economy, health, and society as a whole as a result of COVID, where all of those enormous systems are on the line for the first time, probably in a generation, maybe even longer, and certainly in a different way than 2008. But if we think of a long crisis of neoliberalism appearing in sharp focus with 2008 and continuing, then we can imagine that part of why we get these hyperactive, hyper self meta attentive reality shows is that that attempt to maintain that subject in the face of everything that's going on, we'll just say everything, you know, it's 100 degrees in LA today, it's just one of the many everything things, that is going to require new aesthetic resources, it's going to require faster and faster action, more intelligence, more people going through the gig process, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I think we can see this as symptomatic of where reality TV had to go to perform the cultural work that it does, not just inside its corporate landscape, but also culture-wide in the very small way that, <laughs> that the rehearsal performs culture-wide work.
Absolutely. I think that's exactly on the money. And it reminds me of the scholar June Deary talks about the way that reality television, one of its like strongest claims to any sense of realism is the way that it represents the imbrication of the commercial with everyday life such that it is almost impossible to imagine a meaningful experience that isn't inflected by the commercial. And I think that the rehearsal for all the ways we've described it, you know, the way that actors move in and out, the way that we see PAs, things like that, puts those things in the register, I think very explicitly of parenting and also like the religious or the theological, which are obviously, you know, the family and religion, two important sites of meaning making in the US context and elsewhere. And I think that by creating this funky stew within the form of semi-unscripted, semi-reality television, I guess I'll call it, it does reflect the way that that commercialization, the way that brandedness becomes so constitutive of everyday life. And I think increasingly so during our current moment of crisis in neoliberalism perpetual crisis. Yeah. This is very interesting to me. And it sounds to me like both of you are expecting an amplification of the forms and tendencies that we call reality television instead of a falling out of favor. And one of the sort of conventional ways of understanding the emergence of this genre has been as a response to the writer's strike that suddenly, and somewhat to their surprise, networks recognize is, is doing ratings, is less expensive, it, it's quicker, more rapid to produce, and therefore it's a good fill-in even once the writers come back. And so it does feel as though scripted and script, unscripted television have been at war with each other for the last 25 years, in part because, you know, writers perhaps rightly regard the people who are on reality television as sort of strike breakers. Scabs. They sort of cross the picket line. And now that I'm hearing you, you both anticipate that reality television will, will continue to be a kind of desirable mode in this next phase of neoliberalism or whatever it might be, maybe that antagonism between writers and reality television actors, performers, however, or influencers, however we want to describe them, that maybe that antagonism will go away to some extent and that Fielder is in some ways anticipating that in the fungibility of the performers in the rehearsal as well. But there's a trick to that lack of expense on the reality TV side. And that is that reality series tend toward formats. So they tend toward localization. So Big Brother in England is not gonna be popular in the US. Big Brother in the Netherlands is not gonna be popular in England. You've gotta do it with your people in that one spot. And mm -hmm. localization drives how that reality effect takes hold and seems to continue that way there's not going to be a, the rehearsal for Brazil or a, the rehearsal for, you know, I won't say for India because India seems to be able to like platformize, to use a horrifying word, a lot of things that don't exist. In any case, platforms for reality, blockbusters for prestige. So people around the world watching a version of The Sopranos subtitled or dubbed, people around the world watching Game of Thrones. And HBO had, that's because it was a place of, fandoms and lean in was a place that was tended toward the blockbuster. 
And so there's inherent tension between the people who are writing for Game of Thrones, who get to be tourists a little bit, who get to squeeze more money out of future seasons, who are writing for an audience where, you know, if they get a penny for every viewer, they get wealthy. And the people who are writing in the ways that writers work on reality series or the people who are doing producing, meaning editing and cobbling together story from backhaul are doing for reality TV because those are so overwhelmingly localized and therefore smaller and not going to have that same kind of global pitch. So I think there's an inherent tension just necessarily in scale and audience in that way. I think you're right that there probably won't be like a the rehearsal Australia. But I am curious about whether the post-network streaming moment will facilitate increased audiences for formats that prove durable in some way or formats that have some kind of ability to have a cultural transposition, right? Like, I think we see this in a lot of the Netflix reality formats. I know we're talking more about HBO, but Netflix was successful with Love is Blind. And then almost immediately, you know, we have Love is Blind Brazil, Love is Blind Japan, which also got like a fair amount of viewers. Similarly, with their new Iron Chef show, they also very quickly, like within months of the US version coming out, had an Iron Chef Brazil version that came out. And those are advertised, you know, in the you may also like in the main page of Netflix. So I'm curious about whether increasing globalization and the way that streaming in general, and I think Netflix in particular, seems to be pulling together a kind of global library of content, even though that makes it sound so depressing. <laughs> I think that there might be something about the way that formats start to look different than the way that we imagined formats in the past. I'm also thinking about the way that the upcoming season of Top Chef pulls its cast from all of the global formats. So it's Top Chef Global All-Stars and all of the contestants are from like Top Chef Thailand, Top Chef Canada, the various iterations of the format. So I'm curious about whether we might also be at like a turning point for what it looks like for a format to have an audience and where that audience is located or imagined as being located. Like the American audience for Love Island, the UK version is quite substantial. And the US version, my understanding was, did not perform as well as they wanted it to. And I think we'll see more oddball kinds of moments like that, where a show takes off in a particular local culture and its localism is the thing that can then be exported, like Squid Game, as opposed to requiring a translation in order to find an audience somewhere else. And that too would in some way be a symptom of competition, which is sort of following on the heels of format or genre exhaustion. That if you are a Spanish cable television production company, you're going to put your money on something you hope can be paid for, undergirded by, marketed somewhere else. And whether that turns out to be the show with dubbing or the format itself, you would be agnostic about to begin with. And so, of course, it'll be a little bit more open. I mean, this is not entirely new. You know, British prestige television in the 70s and 80s exists because of PBS. You know, the reason that they're able to scale up those budgets is because they have a tremendous marketplace in the U.S. through Mystery and other PBS branded shows. So I don't want to imply that this is just a part of the crisis of post-2008 globalized television. But I think this exhaustion question is, in fact, new and real. 
You, you mentioned that earnings call earlier and a lot of the hand wringing that followed it, which I, you know, I don't want to jump to too many conclusions about what the strategic plan is for HBO or HBO Max or Warner Brothers Discovery, but it, it did feel from this reception of the plans that were laid out on that call that HBO's plan is to narrow its demographics, or rather Warner Brothers Discovery's plan for HBO is to narrow its demographics, right? That there is the layoff of a number of executives who were working on more diverse projects. There's real questions about the future. Already, you've seen something like Lovecraft Country that really kind of fit the HBO brand in that it was widely acclaimed, that it came out of a sort of pulp genre history. It fit in many ways in the HBO catalog, but didn't get picked up for a second season, even though the showrunners wanted to. And also, HBO seems to be bowing out of children's television. It seems as though maybe they are targeting more exclusively an American audience than a global one. I do wonder if if there is a kind of strategic plan to narrow the demographics for HBO Max while everybody else and especially you know Netflix and Disney plus which seem to be their their most direct competitors are trying as JD said to really branch out and get the top chef melting pot of streaming services I don't think that rap shit gets greenlit in 2022 mm-hmm. that's a guess but and that flies in the face of everything that HBO's and Warner Brothers is you know 100 year history was staked on, which is if you have an auteur who performs for you, you bet on them again. Mm-hmm. And you bet on them again if, if they want to make John from Cincinnati and maybe it doesn't work. That's right. what I was just going to say. I was like, that's how you get John from Cincinnati. <laughs> right. But that's okay. Those are the mistakes you make. And the reason you make those mistakes is because you're always in the talent market and you want the talent market to respect you. And HBO had cued to that very strongly. Whether rap shit gets greenlit or not, it was always a, a tricky global play. Euphoria seemed much less so because it has a true global emerging superstar in Zendaya at the heart of it. And it seemed like it was right there, ready to be that kind of hit for them. I don't know what their like restriction they're going forward is like. The town is clearly panicked as all hell about it because if you don't bet on auteurs any longer or you don't bet on the hit makers that you've had in the past, it's now just random. And as much respect as Casey Bloys has and some of the other folks who work there, part of that respect came from a sense that they had amazing taste. And once you squander the taste of a company, it's almost impossible to get it back. Netflix, for all its power, is not regarded as having good taste on the film side. They'll tell you why they don't have good taste, but they don't have it. And then that creates a kind of spiral going forward and so maybe the art house stuff gets boxed off on the side. And it's like, well, no, we funded, you know, Inurito, we funded Scorsese. But the average Netflix movie doesn't have that, where the average HBO movie does. And that's the brand. So it's very tough to narrow without losing precisely the thing that keeps that brand going. Yeah, I, I, that was sort of the underlying question is HBO has faced a number of existential crises over its history, it feels like maybe every time there is a merger, there is a, you know an anticipation that the HBO as we know it will be going away. 
But I think that question has to be raised again here for exactly the reasons JD just outlined, right? The bet on creative talent that will do innovative things has been the closest thing we have to a sort of HBO ethos going back at least 20 years and, and maybe further. And that doesn't seem to be what's happening at least right this moment. I think that's right. And I think another indicator of the dynamics that are being outlined here is the increasing rise of programming that we haven't really discussed yet on HBO Max, which is the reimagined mid-2000s teen hit, right? We have the the reboot of The Gossip Girl, like which was ludicrous and risible in my, my opinion. We have the Pretty Little Liars reboot, which you slightly more mixed the upcoming Degrassi reboot, you know, it's like almost anything that was some kind of phenomenon for teen or young adult audiences in the two thousands is now ripe for its reboot and ready to be remixed for a variety of, I think, commercial reasons, essentially. And I think that when we see the proliferation of that kind of programming alongside things that seem more Arturish, like Mike White running the white Lotus and it being anthologized and having, returning and new cast members is that there is the increasing kind of reliance on existing IP to make money that we see elsewhere in the media landscape, even when the show that is a reboot is run by someone who's imagined to have some kind of auteur or showrunner status, right? Like when we look at the Gossip Girl reboot, we had like Jeremy O'Harris involved in the writing and appearing on the show, but that did not accrue a sense of like cultural prestige to the show. And similarly, I think that the Pretty Little Liars reboot is run by the same showrunner as Riverdale, who is now being allowed to run wild on any teen IP essentially, but he's not imagined the way that we imagine the showrunners of The Sopranos or The Wire or whatever else that get these kinds of John from Cincinnati mistake chances that are allowed to fly essentially. There's a more uh, sort of invisible workman-like quality. I'm sure he's well paid, but they are not making a, a sort of celebrity out of him. Is this an existential crisis? Before I move on, JD, do you do you have a thought on that? I agree with your sentiment that this is what happens every time HBO or Warner's changes hands. And when the telephone people came in, people were really terrified of them. Yeah. Reasonably so, because they drove out Richard Plepler because they said that they wanted HBO to be four times whatever HBO was. And Richard said, reasonably, there isn't four times as much good programming in the world. We have all of it that we can get, and maybe we can get a couple more series, but like, there's no way to do what you want. He might have been a little bit wrong, and clearly Casey convinced them that they were wrong enough that, that he could just do with bigger budgets, and that worked. I think going forward, if the history is any guide, it's almost always a creative exec who turns out to be the person who can undo whatever the corporate blind alley dead end is that they have steered themselves down, that that was true of Jeff Bukas before he became the guy who sort of sold off Warners in parts. And I think it could be true of Casey. You just don't bet against very savvy people in that organization, certainly not if they're up against or competing with people who run these other sides of Warner Brothers Discovery. Now, also out there is John Malone, who is the ultimate survivor and seems to be able to pull strings a half a century after he was called the Darth Vader of the cable Cosa Nostra by like Al Gore. Like he's still around. So 
I may be being optimistic here, but I do think that there's still a lot of play for individual executives to make differences, particularly once they can point to massive strategic wins. And HBO seems to have those. They certainly do. Do they need to have them right now? One of the things that I have been wondering is how much is riding on the success of something like House of Dragons? Does HBO's autonomy and that ability to be creator-friendly, showrunner-friendly, to have executives that take big swings, is that culture which has been ingrained in the place for decades, does it kind of require them to get one of those hits right now when Discovery is kind of breathing down their necks and there's a huge amount of debt associated with the merger and whoever is able to bring them out of that precarious place is likely going to have a free pass for some time. Is HBO's one real shot at that House of Dragon, which I'm questioning whether it's going to succeed, at least on the scale they are anticipating that it will. I will just like show my cards and say that I don't think it's that great so far the first couple episodes of it I'm not that compelled I don't think it's that wonderful although as a massive fan of bad wigs on television I am having a good time in that respect like I love to see a bad wig but I think that we already see some sense of crisis even there like even if House of the Dragon is a massive hit I think we're still seeing some erosion of the sense of the showrunner just by the virtue of the fact that one of the co-showrunners left already won't be returning for the second season, which regardless of what that means behind the scenes in the public eye erodes that same idea of like a creative voice that has this kind of- An auteur. Yes, exactly. I'm gonna take the contrarian position here and say that House of the Dragons could neither have made or broken this relationship because anyone in the hierarchy on the discovery side would have said, of course, we're green lighting at mm-hmm. this price point, yeah. the spinoff of our most successful show. No mm-hmm. executive clout attaches to anyone who managed to get that thing across the finish line. That was the no brainer. Right. So it's the next show, mm-hmm. the new thing that they try to make a hit. If that works, then that can accrue that kind of clout. And if it doesn't, that counts as a miss. But House of the Dragons is just like, that's the, yeah. the cash dragon, the cash cow over the course of right. this six month period, because it will do tremendous numbers. It did cause a big spike in subscribers, whether it runs as long as they imagine. That's beside the point. I think that that just counts as too easy a call. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's not going to count for them also uh, will be just sort of straight prestige. So the Emmys are sort of ongoing and they're coming up this week. And I don't think it matters except in a way to assuage talent that they win a lot of Emmys this time. Quick sidebar here. The Emmys did take place while this episode was in post-production. And JD's prediction was correct, at least insofar as HBO received 37 awards, by far the most of any network, platform, or production company. And the rest of Warner Brothers Discovery conglomerate netted 11 more. Zaslav and the people closest to him will say, well, yeah, you know, our numbers were down, but we crushed it at the Emmys and we made our competitors look silly. That used to be enough. And I think the same thing is true also, you know, alas, with critics and cred and people like us. The fact that How To With John Wilson is beloved, the fact that this show got a lot of heat, those are nice, but 
that's not what's moving the needle. And what moves the needle are subscribers who are new and subscribers who stay and, you know, budgets that are reasonable. I'm voicing them just because I feel like it's important to give their voice because it's not illogical, even if I disagree and think that what you ought to do is take as many big swings as you can afford. Is one of HBO's ways to retrain its brand identity, its brand equity within this new streaming system to build in a kind of obsolescence to each show, right? They've definitely been doing more miniseries. It seems like more shows that have the potential for a second season, but resolve themselves within the first season and can sort of almost run as miniseries if they don't have huge ratings. Is HBO more likely to be moving towards the, you know, the six episode run, the eight episode run? as opposed to, as presumably many other places are doing, find the next seven season behemoth. I mean, if you look at the slate of the upcoming HBO programming that is like confirmed, not just purely in development, I think the new one with Sam Levinson in The weekend is slated to only have a six episode first season. I think The Last of Us is only supposed to be like nine or 10. And then their other big one coming up is the adaptation of The Sympathizer, which necessarily is bounded by the pace at which they adapt the book. So I think that there are some signs, even though obviously those shows were in development before the recent news around HBO, there's some signs that there's a tilt that way, at least to my mind, if you look purely at the upcoming programming. And that gets down to a question that I think doesn't get a lot of attention, which I'm just going to call organizational confidence. If you believe in your team, and clearly the HBO folks have for generations, you say to yourself, we can spin up hit after hit after hit, even if they're only going to run a season or two, because we're just as good at it as anybody in the business. And so shorter seasons that are still blockbusters because they have one amazing season idea is good enough for you. And if you're not confident, if you think that what you've got to do is sort of get the property out there and titrate it and like balance it out and, you know, make it not appointment viewing and pitch it at a much lower budget level. If you lack that confidence, then you head more toward these replicable serial ideas in the world of pay per month subscribing. Mm -hmm. Once you get to the ad model, though, things are a little different. And this is something we haven't talked much about what advertising is going to do to Netflix and HBO and other places because the ad tier requires that you sell against individual series. There's just no way that they're going to be selling to advertisers based on an overall HBO marketplace right. in general. They're going to sell ads in Game of Thrones for a fucking ton and they are going to sell whatever ads pop up in the rehearsal for not a lot of money because that audience is hypercritical from the beginning. But what they're going to have to do is promise to advertisers that this is replicable and they're going to need a way to say, see how much this got. This is going to be the case next year. And that may push things back toward an older fashioned, more broadcasty model where instead of cutting things off after three seasons, like Netflix was notorious for doing, trying to come up with things that can run for a longer time. And what that looks like in 2025, once it's sort of reestablished and data sharing gets worked out, all of these things are fascinating and new. Mm -hmm. I think we don't really know, but I think we could go back toward series that become your buddy for a decade. Right. Uh, yeah. The sort of sex and, it's, and the city version of that, you know, a, a show yeah. that just can run forever if they wanted to. And I think there is like a 
cultural appetite for the show that is your buddy, especially after a while of the two to three season Netflix streaming model. I am teaching a class that's like intro to the media right now. And I pulled my students and was like, how many of you have a show that has more than five seasons that you return to over and over again? And that's the show that you turn on whenever you don't know what to watch. And almost every single one of them raised their hand, right? For them, it's The Office, Modern Family, whatever else. They do want these kinds of things. And for many of the 18 to 20 year olds in my classes, that was their primary engagement with television is hit stuff like Stranger Things, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, and their comfort show, as they call it. You know, they feel like my friends or whatever terminology you want to use for the cast of characters on your long running sitcom, because it usually is a sitcom. Yeah, and those comfort shows are almost all produced in an era that they were not alive, or at least were not, you know, watching them first run. Something that keeps coming up, this sort of nostalgia for the 90s and the early 2000s, that period where we were at the end of history, supposedly. It does feel that your students, and mine as well, their consumption of Friends and Seinfeld and The Office, even though they weren't living through the conditions of production for those shows. I, I find that very interesting, as is this resurgence of Pretty Little Liars and Degrassi. And, and it strikes me that HBO has been doing some form of neoliberal burlesque for a while, right? Going back to their making Sarah Palin's campaign into a comedy, making the recount into a comedy, making Brexit into a comedy, and most recently, winning time. Like literally putting a filter on the late 20th century in order to make it seem cartoon-like and fun, not even rationalizing, but in some ways erasing the neoliberalization and financialization that destroyed our political economic circumstances. HBO seems to be maybe very invested in this looking back, going back to shows, to forms, to means of distribution, to aesthetics from the 90s and early 2000s. What motivates that? I want to say it's not just a period return. Yeah. It's a, a belief in shows that you see like Minx, which is not from that same time period, that they can dial into any period and make it real again. And that high level of art direction and production design is something that may be shared across that company, across genres, across performances. Obviously, something like Mayor of Easttown is production designed out the wazoo, but also around the accents and those sort of performance cues that feel like art direction as performance. And that level of reality effect, that level of immersion is something that I think they would say unites their shows across all these differences. In that sense, a show that is as stagey and clearly shot on a set as Friends can still serve as the launching pad for HBO Max because it's about the immersion in the friendship, which we know is real. And that's why you have to do the reunion show to prove that these people do know each other. I think that that's probably a crucial part of the branding, and it's something that the rehearsal takes up, flips on its head, makes exactly one of its points of interest. You come to HBO to watch Deadwood, you come to HBO to watch Euphoria, and now I'm going to give you, you know, fake winter in <laughs> Oregon, which is very expensive to maintain, and that moment is, is for that same audience. 
Yeah. There are many sort of single shots in the rehearsal that could be, as you said, like the introductory sequence for Deadwood or True Blood or one of their prestige scripted shows that you see the, you know, the fog over a tree and and you kind of forget, oh, now I'm going to watch Nathan Fielder be awkward. (laughs) But I think it's, you're absolutely right that there is, you know, they find a way to bring that aesthetic in and remind you of how expensive HBO is, right? Yeah. Because it historically was the most expensive thing you could buy on television and you were buying just it so like your cable subscription was more but like you got a lot of stuff for that this is the one-off thing yeah that's so true and i think that also the moment for me in the rehearsal that just keeps pinging around in my mind is the vegetables when they're trying to recreate the passage of time with the vegetables and you see people like digging up and planting fully grown vegetables from the supermarket in the ground. It's just incredible and was like one of the funniest moments to me. But I think there's also a way that that reflects the same dual pleasure we were talking about earlier with visible production where, yes, you know, you're seeing it exposed and you're seeing behind the scenes, but it also is like the bar in the first episode and the way that it recurs later. It's an incredible set and it's wonderful to look at in a variety of ways. And so you can enjoy both the thing itself and the sense that the thing itself is a fiction in some way or has been exposed or the backstage is revealed that then kind of paradoxically makes it even more real in a strange layering that is also enjoyable, right? I think that for the rehearsals imagined audience, both looking at the kind of shot that could appear in the True Blood credits, seeing the set in its back lot wherever, and then seeing the interior of the set in its grimy specificity are all different forms of enjoyment. And in that final episode, Nathan spends a lot of time talking about that when he goes and visits Adam Remy's actual house. That episode, I think it's fraught and it's very condensed, but when he's noticing how perfectly staged the little boy's room is, and that it's more perfect than it could have been, that's clearly part of the aesthetic insight that's gonna lead to, in the sentimental fashion of the show, his emotional insight that what he's done is rake this child over the coals and that this has probably been misguided. But it's not going to stop him from telling everybody to build another version of that double wide house that the little kid lives in and do the amazing set design thing yet again. It's truly, truly impressive how quickly we spin around what at that point are the motifs of this is a set, this set looks amazing, Here's a set version of that set. Yeah, and it reminds me of Mark Andrejevic's argument that like there's the lab rat aspect of reality television where contrivance and artifice are there to get you towards something real or something measurable, that there is a way in which the contrived produced conditions of reality television get you towards something that is like nonetheless true. And I think that the rehearsal is playing in that territory the whole time, right? Like, how can we reach maximum contrivance and then have the twist also be in some way sentimental, but the sentimentality doesn't stop us from creating another contrivance based on that previous sentimentality. The epitome moment is when teen Adam goes down the slide and is young Adam again, where anything can happen. And that moment is both sort of moving and sort of sad and the sense of the inability to undo the passage of time, but our contrivance lets us do it, but it's fake. And it's also kind of ridiculous and maudlin at the same time. And it's just all of it kind of together. 
And that I think is what Nathan Fielder is like most interested in is the place where those things become so muddled as to be maybe indistinguishable. And the flip side of this, because I think we've described a lot of, or been trying to describe what the aesthetic experience of this show is, would be something like Curb, which is another flagship product we haven't talked about, where we on the one hand know that Larry David is just this awkward. On the other hand, it feels so precisely torqued that it couldn't possibly have been that bad in real life. And that's the anti-sentimentality of that show. That moment when you're like, I bet he didn't really do that. Uh, and you're like, oh, actually he and Cheryl did <laughs> Anyway, like there are moments over there. But so it, one of the things I was thinking about was you know, what this show is like. And, you know, HBO obviously is happy to tell me what it is like. Uh, and there are little tiles for the things that it is like. And it's like Nathan for you, they say, which is right, obviously. <laughs> and then they say that it's also, at, I want to do the order right. Then How To with John Wilson, which of course makes sense since Nathan produced that. And then Joe Para talks with you. And I think that that's right as well because of the tonality of that show, which it feels almost like Joe Para himself is a contrivance. And then they get to Mr. Show and Fly to the Concords and then Search Party. You know, these are there. If you like this, you'll also like. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in some ways emblematic of how all the critical stuff that we've been doing is only half a step away from being brand identifiable and marketable. I teach in a very large MA program and a lot of our students go on to work at places just like this and they're, they don't get dumb when they go there. They do smart things. And one of the things they might do is say, well, you know, if I liked this, I would probably like that. And they try to produce some of those concordances. That I think is part of how brand equity aesthetics and this like broader cultural sense that we've been pointing at are activated, that there are real people who build those bridges and green light those shows or watch those shows. And so it's not very different from our own critical opinion making. As you say that, it, it reminds me that one of the challenges of the streaming wars is, you know, the building out of a seemingly infinite catalog on each of these platforms. And one of the advantages that HBO has potentially is the sort of resale of that string of hits you referred to earlier and being able to continually make new prestige television that isn't only valuable because of your consumption of it, but also because you can say, oh, you liked this. We have this other thing, Flight of the Concords, that aired, you know, 15 years ago. But there is some sort of resemblance in the tone, in the style of humor, in the cringiness, perhaps, right? That we have been able to either algorithmically or, as you suggest, more in a curated fashion, find a way to resell these things that we have trust in in a way that a lot of these other platforms maybe cannot have that same kind of trust. The House of Cards, Netflix's first huge hit, probably isn't going to have the rewatch value that The Sopranos has. That HBO's brand, it wasn't designed this way, but it functions as a way to make the catalog sing regardless of how large it is. Whereas for Netflix, it has to be about scale. And yet Netflix spent so much money for so long that it has created just the strangest stuff kicking around 
mm-hmm. on Netflix. You know, no one has any idea what's really out there. It is vast and largely unexplored, and they have been scaling back, but it continues to this day. And I'm a huge fan of like silly stuff. I love the last shot of the rehearsal when it's his butt crack in order to like undermine the whole gender swapping stuff that we've gone through. I'm a big fan of Angie Tribeca, which is just a silly police procedural comedy, way sillier than Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And over on Netflix, they have Murderville. Murderville is interesting in relation to the rehearsal because it's a scripted mystery where there's a murder each time and Will Arnett plays the lead detective. And in each episode, a Hollywood person or a famous person comes on to be the kind of dinner theater sleuth to try to solve this. And they go from like location to location. And while everyone playing the other parts has been given scripts, the visitor has not. And so they're constantly improvising around this person. So formally, it's dialed into exactly the same what's written and what's not, but it's also jokey and comedic and done with comedy setups and punchlines. So it's not quite like the rehearsal. And, you know, it ran six episodes. It was based on a British series from a long while ago. I don't know whether it's coming back. I've been in contact with the showrunner. I don't know that anyone at Netflix knows this show is there. (laughs) <laughs> right? like beyond beyond whoever is in charge of like the scripted series comedy folks, because there are thousands upon thousands of these shows. Whereas, okay, maybe David Zaslav doesn't know uh, about the rehearsal, but like everybody at the top on the HBO Max side knows about this show. And it's that level of attention that feeds into what you're talking about with that kind of cascade of value over time, feeds into what I was calling organizational confidence. And Netflix has just not felt like they needed that for 15 years or whatever. And I think that that offers like a material explanation or one material explanation for the play me something button on Netflix, the feature that randomly generates literally anything from the library, which is like peak ambient television vibes, you know, where you're like, all right, something, that's fine. It might be a K-drama, it might be an anime, it might be Love is Blind Brazil, it might be House of Cards, whatever, is gonna just appear for you out of the ether to be the background noise while you do your homework and then just as quickly slip away without even really affecting the for you that much in terms of like the way that Netflix curates its algorithm, which to me feels much more oblique, let's say, than the list that you read of you may also like for the rehearsal? And that question of curation versus metricization, I think that that strikes me as a really important one for this conversation. I would presume that Discovery Plus, I, I don't actually subscribe, but I would presume that it runs on an algorithmic model. It's pretty easy to sort of generate this person watches this and that therefore they'll watch this. And these shows are in some cases very interchangeable. Whereas I can't imagine that, that HBO produces those lists without somebody looking at them. Even if they use a metric to generate them, somebody's looking for 
potential flaws or outliers. That does strike me as a pretty radical sort of cultural difference between these two organizations that goes back to this distinction between are we going to judge ourselves by awards and reception or purely by the revenues and the ratings. And even to the very origins of HBO, when they first started doing scripted series or even forms of serial series, they said, we don't have to tell anybody what the ratings are because it's not public. And so we can just say it's a hit until we get enough episodes that we can sell it for syndication. <laughs> that strikes me as really crucial part of the HBO brand is that they are generating what counts as good based upon their own internal taste as opposed to counting on how many subscribers does it generate, how does it fit with other stuff on the platform, how much does it cost, how many ads does it require, yeah. Yeah, and I think that you can see sort of that different logic at play with the recent adaptation of The Sandman on Netflix, where literally Neil Gaiman like went to Twitter and was like, please, if you have friends who background watch shows, tell them to play all 10 episodes of The Sandman in the next three days so that the algorithm knows it matters. That's like yes. a paraphrase, but more or less exactly what he said. I've included a small selection of Gaiman's tweets in the episode bibliography at marktwainstudies.com backslash the rehearsal. But if you browse his Twitter feed, you will see him cheerleading for the show and specifically sharing and retweeting lots of evidence of its popularity in various Netflix markets. And I think that that was a moment sort of where the unveiling of that kind of logic became very plain in the public sphere where it's like, oh, it doesn't matter that it's the top hit or it doesn't matter how it's reviewed. I had like very mixed feelings about the quality of that show, but yeah, as we discussed on Twitter and the approachability of that show for those who don't know the source material, but nonetheless, what mattered was how many people played the episodes all the way to the end in a limited time frame for when it first came out. And I think that there is definitely like a different logic even with something like the rehearsal, thinking about the ways that there was an uptake in the sort of journalistic trade press of the rehearsal in a way that there isn't for, you know, your average Netflix show that appears out of the ether and then kind of disappears back into it. And I also think there's something to be said about the way that HBO still relies for many of its shows on the weekly episode drop, as opposed to the whole season drop, that is totally just another piece of evidence towards this kind of curatorial prestige taste imaginary that has been operative there. Yeah, certainly those of us all embedded in the neoliberal university have no idea about gaming the metrics. We would never <laughs> imagine that, you know, that people within an, a creative space <laughs> might somehow fabricate the numbers on which they are judged. Yeah, anyway. I have five different avatars uh, that I teach through just to lower the faculty-student ratio uh, meaningfully at USC. Right. I, at the same time, the weirdness of that, like, be a completer kind of status, which is produced in some ways because of the drop all the episodes at once pressure, is something that Netflix then still has to figure out what it's going to do when it comes time to make programming decisions, because the actual decision to make the next whatever is a decision that a human makes. The algorithm can't write the script yet and you know can't do the casting yet. And so somewhere between the HBO Max curated list of if you like this, you'll like that, and the Discovery 
cable version of programming, where in effect, you're just like, let's slot this in. No one is expected to be a completer of House Hunters. You watch a lot of House Hunters. You watch House Hunters. I watch House Hunters. That's a statement of fact, but there's no completion. People don't know about seasons. People don't know about any of that. But at Netflix, there was, and there still is a little bit of this moment of abductive reasoning where the algorithm says people who like this, like these five other things. And there is a person, there's a room full of people who look at that and say, what do we call that? People who like, and then they have to come up with that. And those people are trained in my program or in other programs. And they'll say, you like uh, quirky, dark sitcoms. Bam, that's what it's called. And then, you know, there's another, you know, flavor of it. It's like, oh, you like quirky, silly sitcoms. Bam, that goes there, whatever. And those categories serve not only as a menu for us, kind of quasi-curatorially, but they also then can serve as guidance for the programming mm -hmm. side. And for a generation, right, that was how Netflix justified its very high stock multiple it said, we're not like ordinary programmers. We're not going based on taste and our guts. The algorithm tells us what people want, and then we can give them more of that in a way that's new and whatever. And, you know, Wall Street believed that until earlier this year. Uh, and now that's done, and we're in a very different space. And that's why Netflix is going to put movies in theaters, and Netflix is going to have advertising, and HBO is going to have advertising. And lo and behold, John Herman is right that the future of the internet is TV, TV in the most TV-ish way that it can be now. That was J.D. Connor and Olivia Stolt. For more about this episode, please visit MarkTwainStudies.com backslash The Rehearsal. Next time, I'll be talking about The Sopranos, and particularly the COVID-era Sopranos revival, with Peter Coviello and Zion Yao. In the meantime, enjoy the snarling yarns. This has been an episode of The American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies. I'm Matt Siegel. Thanks for listening. There's nothing but heartbreak where the ball's from hell. Nothing but heartbreak where the ball's from hell. So when you're asked to wander and your heart does ponder, don't you, sister, don't you even wonder when your hands do touch and your heart does flutter? Don't you, sister, don't you care too much? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't go fishing off the company pier, cause you know where that'll get you to. I don't go fishing off the company There's nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell Nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell Love. Oh, oh, oh. 
It's a bunch of baloney and there ain't no mayo in the county. This stuff is love. Um, I'm so tired of uh, It's like I've been running a race. One of those ultra marathons in my sleep. I should have known when my computer started to grow horns. Thank you for the 17 emails. That picture of your new flip flops that don't flip. Thank you about never saying nothing to your darling back at home. But this kind of offset love, this offset love, is played out. I should have known. Every time I get an email from you, it's like a smoke machine fires up. There's a little bit of smoke coming out the sides. I can see it. Twinkling out of the ampersand This kind of office love Goes off like something back in the refrigerator What's the expiration date on yours and mine? Thank you for the 17 emails It feels like I'm at a laundromat There's only one other person here And she's coughing And she's washing her clothes go round and round And I say what do you see in that? And she says, every man's got a heart like a tumbleweed. Every woman's got a heart like a cactus. Well, every man's got a heart like a tumbleweed. And every woman's got a heart. Nothing but heartbreak with a boss from hell. 